Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. Wonderful. Happy to be in church? Absolutely. We have morning and night and uh, so looking forward to that. It'll be my great joy to uh, introduce Cindy McGarvey um, in a moment's time. Um, we have, uh, Cindy's actually was, was about to be here last year with us, uh, but because of COVID, I uh, wasn't able to come. So just, it's a joy to have her with us today. And um, she's the keynote speaker at the Illawarra Prayer Breakfast coming up this Friday morning. And uh, it's going to be a joy to have her there speaking with us. We're very blessed. Shell Harbour Community Church um, purchased the, the table. And so we have the Mayor of Shell Harbour, the Deputy Mayor of Shell Harbour, and we have Gareth Ward as our guest as well. And so it should be a fantastic morning together. And uh, this morning, it's our great privilege to introduce to you Cindy McGarvey. Cindy McGarvey is the National Director of Youth for Christ, where her husband, um, Rod, served as missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators for 12 years. She's a writer and an author, and it's a great joy to have her here this morning. Would we all stand to our feet this morning to give her a very warm Shell Harbour Community Church welcome? Cindy, thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. Joy to have you. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Damon. We did our contingency planning because usually when I really want to make a good impression, I have to go up on downstairs and I usually trip. So I remember when um, my husband... Um, so I met my husband, Rod, in the army and um, he was training for SAS. And um, so they're very elite soldiers and we... On our first date, well, it was sort of a group date, so his friends and I, we all went to the cinema. And it was one of those cinemas where the stairs were really, really steep. And I was trying to make a good impression and the film ended and we got up to leave and I fell down the stairs and I rolled all the way to the bottom. So, yeah, so I've sort of got a little bit of nervousness about stairs. Lovely to be here with everyone this morning. It's just really lovely to be with people, God's people. So thank you for inviting me. I feel so privileged and I don't take it lightly, Shane. Um, I live, I used to live in Brisbane, but a year ago we moved to the uh, northern rivers of New South Wales and we live on 100 acres and we live in the bush off the grid, and we live in a container, in a shed. So, might look like, you know, I come from the city or whatever, but um, it's been raining for five months. And we've been locked in twice. For two weeks at a time, we haven't been able to get out. So, I've had four weeks of being totally locked in. Thank God we had food and all of that sort of thing. But um, someone mentioned about Noah's flood and the rain stopped the day before. This was the first big flood because we had two. The rain stopped the day before, but all overnight it just rose because the banks must... We don't live near a river or anything like that. And at the bottom of our property, there's like there's a little stream 700 metres down, but we sort of live on a ridge. And we woke up 
my husband was sort of watching 11 o'clock that night and he was watching the water rise and thought, that's a bit funny, but it won't, you know. It came maybe 20 metres from our house before he went to bed at 11. And then he woke up in the morning and stepped out. as like stepping out of a caravan, you know. And um, I could hear him and it was pitch black dark, so it was five, which is really four in daylight saving time. And I could hear him sloshing around. And, um, you know, our cars, the water was up to the wheels and all that sort of thing. So we had to get them out. So we had to evacuate in the dark. But that's how far it came. Um, And nights after that, you were always thinking, um, you were sort of traumatised because you thought, this happened while I was asleep. And when something happens while you're asleep, and that's what happened in Lismore, people were sound asleep in their beds, there was no rain, and the water just crept up. Yeah, it was a very surreal experience. But again, great to be here. So I have a presentation, and it's called Habitas. And I gave this presentation, I've given it, just a few times before, but I gave it recently at the Victory Summer School because they asked me, this was in January, they asked me to speak to them about how to live in this culture as a young person, to live out your Christian faith in this culture. And I thought it was really good to look back at the early church because I I look around and I see that our uh, culture is very pagan. And there are a lot of similarities. So habitas is really just an old word that means simply how we live our life and how we respond and react to all the things that come at us every day. What comes out of us when we are hit with hard circumstances, when we're hit with offence and uh, hard times, difficult times, we've We've all been hit with those sort of things all the time. We face them daily. Do we react in Christ-likeness or do we react destructively without the fruit of the Spirit, like patience, like gentleness, self-control? So... What does it look like to live out our Christian values and our allegiance to God in a culture that is so hostile to the Christian way? And so, as I said, I think it's very enlightening if we go back and look at the early church times of the pagan Roman culture and look at how the Christians lived there. And so I'm going to begin with a story. So we'll go to the next slide. This story is from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's, I'm going to take you back to Carthage, which is a leading Roman city um, in what is now known as Tunisia, which is a country in northern Africa. The proconsul scheduled a public event, a day of games and spectacles performed in the amphitheatre to celebrate the birthday of the emperor's son. And people were seated in accordance to their importance. And in the arena were the victims. They were the animals, the gladiators, 
and the criminals. And criminals were allowed to be sold to be used in these games because this gave much more entertainment and it also served as a warning to the people to not do what the criminals had done. So on that day in March, 203 AD or CE, the people went to the amphitheatre to participate in the public event. And it was their normal activity, perhaps just like going to a football, football match in our day. And on this day, they encountered something different. They saw Christians, people who embodied uncommon allegiances. And they responded in inexplicable reflexes. Their behaviour challenged the norms or the behaviours and values of the norm. Now, the crowds were emotionally engaged. They were oscillating between intrigue and fury, get them, and um, attraction, wow, and revulsion. And an eyewitness account was written about this event, particularly focusing on a young lady named Perpetua. And she was about 21 years old. And unlike the others in her group, who were either poor or slaves, she was of noble birth and she'd been educated and she could write. She actually kept a diary. So she kept a diary up until this time and then someone wrote afterwards. So that's why we know the whole account of what happened. So the group of about six were from a small town about 35 miles outside the city and they were all what is called catechumens, which means they were studying... uh, to be baptised. They were being discipled. They were preparing for baptism. So they got arrested and their teacher, it had said that he got himself arrested after they had because he wanted to be with them because it was inevitable what was going to happen. What sort of teacher would do that? He wanted to stand with them to the end. And while they were in prison, he actually baptised them. And the night before, they celebrated a last supper. We just had a supper, in a way. They celebrated a last supper the night before in front of onlookers who were allowed to come and see what the spectacle was going to be for the next day. They were in prison for a few weeks before this event and they had a few weeks to prepare their hearts and minds for this situation. And one young woman, Felicitas, she was a slave girl. She, had, she was nine months pregnant and they prayed that she would have the baby before she went to the arena and the day before she had the baby and they were all rejoicing. So God answered their prayer. Perpetua's father, now I said she was an, of noble birth, He came to her in the prison and he entreated her, please just renounce the faith. And um, things got a bit tense between them. And she said, Father, do you see this picture? There was a water picture, not a picture, a water picture there. And she said, do you see that picture? Do you see this picture here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. 
Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. So when the day came, they marched into the arena triumphantly without cringing. They had steeled themselves for this, even though they didn't fully know what to expect. Some accounts say that they were forced to be naked and others say that um, the officials tried to force them to dress up as the gods and goddesses, as was the custom for the games. Anyhow, they refused. Perpetua was a spokeswoman for the group. And they wanted to keep their identity. There were two women in the group, Perpetua and Felicitas, the the young woman who's believed to be about 14, who just had the baby. And they were tossed by a wild beast with horns that had been provoked to attack them. Perpetua got up and she went to help a friend. And then the crowd were confused. A noble woman, woman helping a slave girl? And that expressed the Christian horizontality, the love. It doesn't matter what rank you are or anything like that, but that was so unusual to Roman culture. The games went on. They were all attacked by either gladiators or wild animals. And at the very end, they helped each other up and they gathered themselves in a little group And then their teacher admonished a guard who had been guarding them. He ended up being converted um, by them while he was guarding them in prison. And so somehow he ended up in the arena as an official there. And he, the teacher took off his ring and he dipped it in the blood and he gave it to the, the guard and he said this, remember me and remember the faith. And then the little group of Christians gave each other a last, final, farewell kiss of peace, of peace that we just heard about before they were run through with a sword. And the crowd reacted in all different ways, mostly indifferent, but some had been jarred from their former ways of thinking and acting, and it's reported that some even became believers. Next slide. So Perpetua lived in a godless society. The Roman culture of the time could be described by these points. We have a list here. Now, at first glance, it would seem that our culture may be very different. Well, we don't live in that sort of culture. But if you dig beneath the surface, we see that we are more alike than you would think. So for time's sake, I'm just going to pick a couple, a few. Highly superstitious. Well, we're not superstitious in our culture. You know, they, they practiced augury, which is divination by watching natural signs as, you know, the birds fly over in this direction, that means this, and all of those sort of things. However, we have astrology, crystals, dream catchers, tarot cards, spells, all sorts of things going on. I would call that pretty superstitious. What about a violent culture? Well, we're not really violent. We don't kill people. We don't even have the death sentence. But... Um, 
If you think about what we watch on TV, on movies and things like that, there are people who research how many violent killings our little kids grow up with, how many they've had in their lifetime until they reach adulthood. And it's really hundreds. It's shocking. Another one. Women were considered inferior to men. Interesting. If you don't think this is present today, I'm going to challenge you. The feminist ideology wants women to be more like men. Their ideology glorifies the male attributes of strength, aggression, stoicism, sexual prowess without emotion or connection, and so on. Those attributes are valued by feminists, today's feminists, over feminine attributes of virtue, gentleness, care, inner strength of character, fiercely protective of the vulnerable, especially little children, homemakers, mothers, and much more. You just have to watch the movies and you'll see hard-nosed women cops, CIA agents, investigators, even women superheroes. And they act like men, beating up men, having little to no emotion doing it, killing people with no emotion, sleeping with multiple men without any strings or emotions. And I could go on. All this to say is that the feminist ideology is perpetuating a hatred toward those beautiful God-given attributes of women. And in essence, even a hatred toward womanhood or motherhood. I think that's devaluing women. And men don't get off the hook either. The way that men treat women as sexual object, objects for their pleasure by viewing pornography is incredibly degrading. And it promotes a callousness toward women. Young men have told me, I, I wrote the Lost Boys book and I, I got to interview lots and lots of young men. And they told me that their addiction to pornography made them hate women even their own mothers, because it was like women had become the source of their slavery to porn. And viewing women like this meant that they had to carry a huge load of shame every single day. And whenever they looked at a girl, it would remind them of that shame. So women are being devalued by men in our culture. So we wonder a lot about how the early church grew and what it was about Christians that had the biggest impact on society that was so pagan and godless and that loved violence even to the point of putting Christians to death. As I said, for sure, I think we live in a pagan society, 
but it's a new paganism. It's very humanistic, materialistic, nihilistic. Paganism is simply the human spirit, the gravity of the human spirit toward the line of least resistance. Religion in its fallen state from a purpose beyond yourself to self. I'm the boss. I can decide for myself. So what was it that distinguished the Christians from the culture that they lived in? Okay, I'm going to go through seven aspects, and I'm sure there's many more. I know there is because I've read up on it. Um, But I'm going to show you seven aspects of how the Christians lived their lives, their habitats, uh, that made them stand out as holy and pure in a wicked and perverse generation under the Roman rule. Next one. First one, integrity in business. What, what's that? It's not ripping off customers. It's willing to speak the unadorned truth about a product they were selling. It's refusal to retaliate when others treated them unethically. When borrowing money from pagans, they didn't follow the customary practice of giving guarantees under oath because it was forbidden for Christians to do that. And very likely a refusal to engage in litigation. They spoke plainly and honestly and they charge fair prices. Next one. Sexual discipline. This was so important. Many contemporaries noted that Christians were committed to sexual purity, and they admired this. It's written that Christians, this is a quote, repudiated adulterous glances, avoided second marriages and committed themselves to lifelong continence. One philosopher of the time wrote that he was deeply impressed by the Christians' sexual behaviour, their restraint in cohabitation, because it was normal for a married man to have sexual relations with his slaves or even with children. It was really big in Roman um, culture. The wives were expected to remain faithful, but the men could do what they wanted. And yet here it was that men, the Christian men, had restraint in cohabitation. And this writer says it compelled him to take their faith seriously. What could we say about the Christian church today? A study last year said that Something like 65, this is a Barna study, 65% of men, Christian men in churches in the US consume porn regularly. When they narrowed it down to age group, 18, 78% of 18 to 24 year olds. And the average age we know there's stats out, average age that uh, young people see porn, boys see porn is, some have said nine, 11, some have said nine. In all of my research, it's usually six to seven years old. 
So parents, beware. And usually they, they are introduced at school by their friends. So what we're having in the church today is men, young men before they reach adulthood, are sexually broken. What a great strategy of the enemy. And I know it affects girls as well, but I'm not going to go into that, but certainly the girls are following. How could this happen in the church? It's such a tragedy, and I don't think the Christian church at the moment can boast of purity, sexual purity. Next slide. In Roman culture, men met with other men. And the Christians had the usual, had an unusual practice of meeting together, just like this morning. Men, women, children. Old women were particularly despised in Roman culture. The children were ignored. But the Christians were very different because not only did they meet together, they taught and trained their children in godliness purposefully. Women were very active in the early church and it's thought that women were probably the church's most effective evangelists. And new believers were really attracted to the way that Christians loved each other and cared for each other. Next one. The early Christians were faced with forces that they saw as evil, social, spiritual, economic, religious and political. Nevertheless, the Christians saw their struggles as spiritual forces that were hostile to human flourishing. And they believed that they could defeat these forces through prayers for exorcism and healing. So according to a church father's writings, Clement of Alexandria, when Christians joined for worship, they were, this is what he says, I love this, God-fearing old men, God-beloved orphans, widows armed with gentleness, and men adorned with love. And they asked God for the subduing of sickness to be put to flight with the laying on of hands and the shattering of violence of demons, which would be reduced to impotence by confident commands. So the early Christians became known to their contemporaries as healers and exorcists. Next one, care for poor people. In the early church world, there were many poor in Roman, and in Roman society, it's believed around 65% of people live close or below subsistence level. And care for the poor was a fundamental practice. Am I looking at a time up here? It looks like I'm going over. I'm good, okay. 
I'm really getting into it here. So, yeah, I'm getting on this roll. Got 20 more pages to go. No. <laughs> All right. Um, so the practical application of charity was a powerful cause for the Christian success. Next one. Patience that prohibits taking life and violence. Refusing to participate in the taking of human life in any form at all was a basic Christian commitment. It was a product of the Christian's high value of life. So infant exposure was common. So the father of the child could decide if the baby would live or die. Give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And if a man came home from war and his wife had given birth while he was away, he could say, no. So he had a right to take a baby's life. Often they were just put out on, on a um, heap, on a garbage heap or something. But the Christians would go and collect them. That's why there were so many orphans. Christians believe that uh, they shouldn't take vengeance or revenge. They should leave that up to God. Next one. Christians never compelled anyone. They believe that God worked by means of persuasion and that he doesn't use violent means to obtain what he desires. The early church fathers believed that church growth would depend not on pressure or coercion, but on proof, on the believer's lives, how you lived your life every day, which demonstrated across time their beliefs had authenticity. Next one. So it was because the early church didn't fit in with the surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love, that Christianity eventually had such effect on it. Actually, that's a quote by Tim Keller. When Christians challenged culture, when they challenged culture by living our faith in righteousness, others will be intrigued and drawn to us. Others may actually hate us. The world and the spirit of the age will hate us. And we need to understand that. We don't have to have everyone like the way we live. The Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 um, was often the only scripture that the early church people had. They might have had one for just one scroll or something for the, the entire little church group. And in it, we have the Beatitudes, you know, how to respond to hatred and hostility. Blessed are they. Blessed means happy, calm, forgiven, content sheltered, refreshed, peaceful, spiritually alive. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are persecuted, who mourn, who are pure in heart, and so on. And then in that chapter, he goes on and talks about the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He also talks about the condition of our heart. Anyone who looks at a woman in lust or a man in lust, or if you had hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder and much more. 
discipleship was so very important to the early Christians, which is known as catechesis, as I explained before. It was the careful formation and teaching of new believers. And it wasn't just left to chance that people would pick it up somehow along the way. Next one. Yeah, the church, this is from Matthew Henry, the church most influences the world when the church is least like the world. If we as a church look exactly like the world and do the same things and value the same things, then we become irrelevant. We're really just a club of really nice people. A 2021 Barna study said that, amazingly, 69% of Americans self-identify as Christians. So a tick box, yes, I'm Christian. But then they give them dozens of questions. Do you believe the Bible is actually the Word of God? What is marriage? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is actually alive and working? And all of these sort of questions, dozens of them. And they found that only 6% of that 69% had something of a functioning Christian worldview, 6%. And for 18 to 29-year-olds, it was 2%. The church most influences the world when the church is least like the world. Next slide. Paul describes the heart attitudes of people in the last days. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, it says, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, not lovers of good, and so on. And it says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Boastful and proud. What does that look like in this era with social media? Selfies, platforming ourselves. We live in a marketing world where we've learned to market ourselves to the world and our follow, followers on social media. Lovers of money. Surely we're not like that. But materialism gets us all. We love nice things too much. Nice homes, nice clothes, nice cars. Speak to myself here. And when we talk about lovers of selves, what do we mean? Self-love, narcissism, self-preservation is being overly concerned about this life and fearful. Self-worship is lifting ourselves above God. Self-actualization, putting confidence in the flesh over the Holy Spirit. Self-esteem is focusing on who we are, not who we are in Christ. 
You know, when I follow myself, it leads me to a life of misery. I've tried it. I somehow just step onto a road of destruction. But Jesus said, Cindy has to die in order to experience life. So at the start, I spoke about Habitas and how we live our daily lives with all of the things that come at us during this course of life. And my question and challenge, are we living for ourselves or are we living for God? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. For the sake of the lost, and that is our children and the next generation, for the sake of the lost, do not be conformed to this world. And now it's time to wrap up. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us, your people. I blush when I think of my heart attitude behind so many things I do. I renounce selfism, putting myself as the authority of my own life. And I resolve by your grace to set myself against them and to follow you in holiness and the righteousness you've provided for us in Christ Jesus, your son. Amen. What a great encouragement and a huge challenge as well. Look at me multitasking. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> You're still asleep too. Cindy, thank you so much. That was just so encouraging um, to us and a great challenge as well. We've been uh, uh, on a journey um, discovering and rediscovering the person of the Holy Spirit. And I've got no, um, no um, misunderstanding of the importance of him. Um, in our church, in our lives, in the world that we're in, how important it is. One little stat that was up there that Cindy didn't mention, and it was in uh, Maternity News, I think it was this, this week, um, they surveyed the pastors across the church in the States, and only 37% of them hold to a biblical worldview. 37% of the pastors that they interviewed, only 37% hold a biblical worldview. That's why we need to be encouraging the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, amen, in our own personal lives, but also in the church as well, because Jesus said he will guide us into all what? Truth, amen? So I do encourage you with that. Thank you so much. We're going to receive an offering right now, and uh, the offering is for the work that Cindy does uh, through Youth for Christ. So this is not for Cindy, it's towards the organisation. And so right now, we're just going to ask the host to come. They're going to do it a little bit old school this morning. We're going to receive that. If you didn't come prepared, you can go to the information counter and the FPOS machine is there as well. We just want to be a blessing to you and to what you're doing through Youth for Christ and just challenging and encouraging so many people around Australia and beyond. Amen. So Father, we just thank you. We just pray for your blessing right now as we give. We do it with a generous heart. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be able to invest in this ministry. And we know that as we use our money for your kingdom, that you take it, you multiply and you build with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.